0: This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Broad.
1: Hello, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. All you have to do is turn on the TV or the radio or open up a newspaper or flip to your favorite website, and you'll hear from financial advisors and their money managers and analysts, and they will tell you that your finances are enormously complex, and if you don't listen to their advice, you're going to ruin your chances of retirement, you're going to run your savings into the ground, and you're going to end up in the poorhouse. But here's a newsflash. They are wrong. When University of Chicago professor Harold Pollack interviewed Helene Olin, who's an award-winning financial journalist and the author of a best-selling book called Pound Foolish, he made kind of a flip suggestion. Hey, you know what? Everything you need to know about managing your money can fit onto an index card. And to prove his point, he grabbed a 4x6 card, scribbled down a list of rules, and posted a picture of the card online. The post went viral. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Harold Pollack about his 4x6 card. And we're going to get his no-nonsense, jargon-free take on finances that's going to cut through all of the white noise and provide us with some real value. So grab yourself something to write with and something perhaps a little bit bigger than a 4x6 card and get ready to write down these 10 simple rules that are going to create a disarmingly simple financial plan that's going to get you and your family through tough times and good times.
0: More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brought after this, from the MrDad.com radio network.
1: almost every school bus and classroom. I go to school with your children. We say the pledge of allegiance together. You see me around the neighborhood, and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. This problem is closer than you think. My teacher tells me we can grow up to be whatever we want. I want to grow up to be someone who doesn't go to bed hungry.
0: There's enough food in this country to feed everybody.
1: Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me, quietly struggling with hunger.
0: Together, we are Feeding America, brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Bratt, and my guest for this part of today's show is Harold Pollack, who is the author, the co-author of The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to be Complicated. Harold, thanks for joining us.
0: Oh, thanks so much for having me. You
1: know, in, in the introduction I mentioned how you got started with this thing, sort of a flip comment about, hey, I ought to be able to write this. It's not that complicated. I ought to be able to put it on a piece of paper. Uh, is that about the extent of the story, or is there more to it than that?
0: Well, you know, I had there's a little bit more to it than that. Uh, I actually, until I was about age 40, I really didn't manage my money very effectively. And it was only when I had a sort of personal financial crisis, uh, that, uh, my, my mother-in-law actually died suddenly and her son, who's, uh, intellectually disabled, had to move into our home and my wife had to leave the workforce to take care of him. And all of a sudden we had some pretty serious money issues, as you might imagine. I
1: can imagine, yeah.
0: And I tried to, and, and at that point I sort of had to really grow up in a hurry and, and I really took stock of you know what I, what I knew about finance and the things that people had told me and uh, and I realized so much of what's out there uh, you know is not helpful, and so much of what you really have to know is really pretty simple and um, uh, and so so it, you know it took some time, but really uh, you know the what ended up on that card was kind of a distillation of the things that I learned while trying to get my own finances in order yeah. in a difficult time and uh, so that 's why i uh, I thought it was important to share it with people
1: oh, absolutely, and I think we're going to be able to hopefully have people uh, be able to skip the difficulties you went through and maybe <laughs> I hope so solve some of those things so let 's start off with the first one I think we yeah. it sounds i guess all of these in a way sound simple, but I think they're probably a little bit harder to explain, which is why we have a, a book that's uh, more than 200 pages as opposed to just a single sheet of <laughs> single sheet of paper. Exactly. Uh, but t- talk about number one, which is save, strive to save 10 to 20 percent of your income.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Uh, by the way, my original index card said save 20 percent of your money. And I got a bunch of emails from people that were, were of the form, dear Professor Pollack, I'm a 28-year-old single mom. You just told me to save 20 percent of my money you know, blank you or whatever, or some (laughs) version of that. Yeah, And I was always, and I, I can only say, you know, I get that totally. It's hard to save your money. Um, And, um, and the goal is not to go on a sort of starvation diet, but to make sure that you're actually spending your money on the things that are important to you in a realistic way. So, you know, if you're the kind of person who just needs a Starbucks $3 coffee every morning to get going, Great uh... you know just make sure there's something else that you're balancing if you don't have a lot of money so that you can comfortably do that right if you if you don't care about coffee then you know why don't you skip it and save some money and and take that money and spend it on something else i think most of us have at least some room where we can where we can save a little more spend a little less one of the things we talk about in the book is try to pay cash as much as you can for things there's a lot of evidence that when you pull that plastic credit card out of your out of your pocket or the debit card that you're just a little bit looser with the way you spend your money. Uh, it's yeah, well, that's
1: thanks to all the ads we hear or the ads we see where it's just easy. You just whip it out and pay for it. They never have an ad where they show anybody writing checks. No.
0: You know, you know by the way, one of the tips that I think is very helpful is ignore your credit card reward program because... When you start thinking about that reward program, what happens is you spend more money.
1: Well, let, let's get to that one. I want to yep. go back to the twenty okay. percent, the ten to twenty yeah. percent thing. Are you suggesting so you get a check? So you're, are you you saving ten to twenty percent of your after-tax dollars of your net take-home pay, or and do you suggest? I mean, I heard have heard various theories about this. You pay yourself first, so you immediately take ten percent and put it aside, or you know, does, does putting, taking advantage of your employer's 401k program count as the 10 to 20 percent? How? Give us a little bit more
0: uh, I actually am pretty, there. I'm more strict than you are. I count the, uh, you know, your your gross pay, you know, whatever your official salary is before they take stuff out. And oh boy. that's what you okay. want to save 10 to 20 percent of. And I, I do all my saving right off the top by having it taken right out of my paycheck, put into my 401k, you know, or other ways that I save. I never have to touch it. I never have to think about it. I get there's you know there's some tax advantages and my employer uh, puts in some money to match my 401k, and um, you know be paying yourself first is a great rule and it reduces the stress involved. You know you just you know it's just never it's it's just something that you never have to think about. It's done for you Mm -hmm. automatically every month.
1: Yeah, and I I also hear sometimes if you get a raise, try to. Put that entire amount. If you were able to make it before, on what you were what you were getting by on before, take the entire amount of the raise and start saving that, or at least some portion of it. That makes it that makes it easier, right?
0: I think that's a great idea. the only The only exception I would make to that is if you have some sort of outstanding credit card debt.
1: Right. Pay that right. off
0: first. But but absolutely, it's a it's a lot easier to maintain your current lifestyle and save more than it is to cut back on your lifestyle. So you want to make you want to. You know, work that in your favor. Yeah. I also have, I also have. this kind of hokey, but I have bank accounts that have different names. Like I have a vacation account, and I have a kid's college account, and I have things that, that are meaningful to me. So whenever yeah. I take money and I put it into, it, I say, oh, I'm, it's going into next year's vacation.
1: Oh, I think that's a fantastic idea. I've got something very similar set up. Every, so most of what I do is freelance money. Uh, I, every every check that I get, I take half of it and I put it in some account, and a big chunk of that half goes into my tax account because I'm going to have to be paying taxes at some point on that stuff. So Absolutely. having it in an account that's called the tax account, it, it in a way tells me, keep your hands off of this. <laughs> you know, do do not touch this because you're going to need it.
0: So. Yeah, whatever whatever works for you in that yep. way. And the goal was to make something reasonable and livable. You know, it's not like you're, you know, what, you shouldn't be living in a tent in your backyard and renting out your house. Uh, you know, it's that you're trying to make it... Uh, something that's very sensible and methodical.
1: All right, so let's talk about that credit card thing because mm-hmm. that is so huge. I think so many people, you know, I, I, I have been paying off for years. My credit card balances completely every time, so I don't really even pay attention to what the interest rates are. But every once in a while, I look at the, at the statement and it says, you know, if you don't pay this, you're going to be paying twenty 29%. You think that's illegal. Yeah. Or it yeah. ought to be.
0: It is phenomenal. The interest rates that you pay on your credit card are so huge, and if you have, a, particularly if you have an outstanding balance, that uh, you know we tend to think we get a grace period when we use our credit card. You don't really only get that grace period on on stuff when you're paying off your credit card in full. So you know when you pay down your credit card, uh, if you're just you know if you if you say you have a couple thousand dollars on your credit card that you've been struggling to pay down every dollar that you put in to pay that debt down, you're getting a completely risk-free and tax-free return of like 15%, depending on which what your credit card is. You know, the interest rate's going to vary. But it's going to be way, way better than any other investment anybody who's not named Warren Buffett is going to be able to do. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. so the first priority is to, is to chip away at that debt. And, um, you know, for many, many people, absolutely the best thing they can do is to work on their credit card. It's not only the interest rate, by the way, it's also all sorts of fees. One of the uh, remarkable things for people who, who have a low credit rating and who are sort of struggling with the, their finances, a lot of the money that they pay to the credit card company is actually in the, not interest, it's fees. It, you know, I went over my limit, I paid it late, yeah, yeah. that kind of thing. And you just, you just really want to do whatever you can to avoid getting into that trap. Uh, and uh, now if your credit card debts are really high, uh, you know, that's when you you, know, you might want to go and get some financial help to see, uh, you know, if it's unpayable, then, uh, then it's a different conversation. But fortunately, right. for most of us, that's not the issue.
1: Right. But I think w- one little piece of advice I'd throw in there is take a look on somewhere on the statement. I think it's almost every statement that you get from credit card companies. It must be a, a legal requirement that they have now is if you pay the minimum payment, it will take you this long. And if you pay less than the minimum payment or something, you know, so you, you it's shocking to see, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, for a $2,000 balance, it could take you five or six years to pay that off if you, if you just do the minimum payment. So even if you're throwing an extra five or 10 bucks at it, you're going to, again, as you're saying, you're going to get a, a, a high return on that money.
0: Yeah. There's nothing magical by the way about the minimum payment, except that if you pay less, you you pay had, a penalty, a but there's, yeah. there's absolutely no reason to only pay the minimum payment. That is, it, uh, you know, you should not let that psychologically anchor you at that amount. You want to pay as much as you can that's above that.
1: And what do you think about the trying to kind of arbitrage uh, everything over to zero interest or zero transfer mm-hmm. fees, those kinds of things? Are you an advocate of using those, or is there a way to, that you should not use them?
0: What a great question. I think, well, I, I think you should prioritize paying. If you have multiple credit cards, you should always pay off the one with the highest interest rate first.
1: Talking with Harold Pollack, who's the co-author of The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to be Complicated. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Harold.
0: Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit stoptextstopwrecks.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. All right, class.
1: Let's hear what everyone did this weekend. Jill? Well, I raised my older sister to a big oak tree. It was at least a 100 years old. My mom said I must have set a record or something. And then we went down by a stream and perched up on this Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week and find the fun, adventurous you. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council.
0: My name's Rachel, and in eight years, I'll be an alcoholic. Kids
1: who drink before age 15 are five times more likely to have alcohol problems when they're adults.
0: I'll start drinking in middle school, and I'll do some things I don't really want to do. So by the time my parents talk to me about it, Alcohol won't be my only problem.
1: So start talking before they start drinking. To learn more, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and this station. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Harold Pollack, who is the co-author of the Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to be Complicated. I want to move on. There are There are 10 different strategies here, and we're, of course, not going to get to all of them, but Mm I want to combine a few of them. You've got never buy or sell individual stocks, and then you also have buy inexpensive, well-diversified indexed mutual funds or exchange-traded funds. Let's talk about those those together. I think, think, you know, one of the things I actually had this conversation with my financial advisor person about there was a time when I was investing in individual stocks and realized after a while that, you know, I pick up the newspaper, the Wall Street Journal or whatever, and and I think, oh, there's a cool thing to buy. But the market has already taken that into account. And so it's extremely unlikely that I'm going to have some sort of inside track on anything. And is that one of the reasons why you're suggesting staying away from individual stocks, as tempting as it is?
0: Absolutely. And, you know, there's some awfully shiny objects. The only really fantastic way to buy individual stocks is to get a time machine and then go back and buy Apple stock, you know, 20 years ago and that sort of thing. Uh, there's really no way to pick stocks effectively. The, the people, all the, all the evidence is that almost everybody, when they buy and sell individual stocks, uh, does much worse than if you just bought the market average and didn't do anything with it and you know, even you know the highly skilled financial professionals who run mutual funds those people typically underperform the market and it's just uh, there's just no reason to get into you know what's going to happen to the next iPhone that sort of thing you just buy the cheapest stock index fund you can find and you don't mess with it and you don't you really don't have to read the business section of the paper at all uh, in terms of what's happening to the stock market. Uh, and it, it, that, think of how wonder, liberating that is and how wonderful that is. I just don't have to care about any individual company. Uh, you know, my entire stock holdings, you know, I own like four or five funds. That's where all my retirement and all my kids' college and everything.
1: So let's talk about the, the one of these things. I'm looking at rule number seven, which is buy mm-hmm. a home when you're financially ready. And I remember th- that hit me all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of reminded me of my parents' saying something the opposite, but about having kids. I feel like if you wait until you're ready to have kids, (laughs) you'll never have kids.
0: (laughs) Yeah, fair enough.
1: (laughs) So, I mean, is there a point, you know, should everybody be looking ahead to buying a house? Is that generally the best investment? And then should you push it a little bit? Because, you know, if you you look at it just straight across dollars, you have a mortgage payment of $2,000 or a rent payment of $2,000. You're actually getting something more for the mortgage payment, you're getting a tax deduction, you're getting all sorts of stuff. So, I mean, should you push a little bit on that or, or is there such a thing as being financially
0: ready? I, I personally do not believe you should push things. I think your house is that you should view your house as the thing that you live in and the, and the thing that determines where your kids are going to go to school. There's a bunch of things about your house as something that you use rather than as an investment. You know, that's what's really important. They're, um, it's the most undiversified investment that you can make. Uh, it's also it's very hard to get money out of your house if um, you know, suppose your house declines in value and you have to move all of a sudden, you have a problem. Uh, if you you know if somebody loses a job or the furnace explodes or the roof gets a bad leak or all this, there are all these expenses that are associated with, Owning a house, and there are all these risks that come with it financially, and I, I I think that it's not something that you that you rush into, and it's not something that you try to buy as much of a house as you can as an investment strategy. I think that you're much better off, you know, buying the buying a house that you can easily afford, and if you can save beyond that, uh, you know, put it into your retirement and things like that. I um, I told you that I had a financial crisis in my own life. What saved me in that crisis was that I had a, a pretty cheap house. And I could really, uh, you know, I, I, I could stop going to Starbucks. I couldn't stop making my mortgage payment. But fortunately, my mortgage payment was pretty low. And, uh, you know, you're. I, I looked at what happened to a lot of my friends when the foreclosure crisis hit. And, boy, it was really painful for a lot of people. So I, I'm not a big believer in sinking money uh uh you know into your house that that that's beyond your comfort zone.
1: Mhm. Uh, so you would stay away from from uh, variable rate mortgages?
0: Absolutely, especially interest rates now are so low that why 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 add that additional risk in your life when you can get just this, I'm a big believer in the vanilla ice cream 30-year uh fixed rate mortgage. And uh, you know right now their interest rates are quite low. And if you can't afford to buy the house that you want with that sort of a mortgage, you really need to take a second look and say, is this house maybe a little too expensive for me, because if I get an adjustable-rate mortgage, what will I do if interest rates go up and I'm in this house? Probably if interest rates go up a lot, the, the sales price of my house is going to go down, and it's going to go down right uh, around the time that my hmm. uh, mortgage payments are going to become more difficult for me to pay. So I just think that that's... Uh, There's just no need to do any of that stuff.
1: Right. Well, I think that was really the essence of the the mortgage bubble, was really the variable rates, not so much because people could generally qualify or they could at least make the payments on the initial rate. It was after things started ticking up and payments were doubling. That was when the problems were.
0: Absolutely. And there was this idea that, well, I could just refinance before the the interest, uh, you know, the hike kicks in. And if for some reason uh, you can't do that, then you get stuck. And uh, I also am a big believer that you really should have 20% down on your house, and and you should have more money above that for you know your emergency reserve if the furnace bursts or whatever, so that you can get a better interest rate, and you're sort of financially set to really live in the house.
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things I remember years ago setting up my kids when they were very little with uh, three different jars or four different jars. We had the the short term investment, the spend it now the longer-term investment, and then the give-it-away kind of thing. So the, so mm-hmm. there were four. Some people do three. But I, I noticed in here that you have number nine, do what you can do to support the social safety net. Yeah. And there's something of that, too, is mm-hmm. being aware that there are other people who need maybe more than you do.
0: I think that's such a bedrock thing, and I'm glad that you were conveying that to your kids. I think that that's uh, – I wish we had written more in our book about how to communicate to kids Financial responsibility and social responsibility. You know, I, I'm very proud of the saving and investing that I've done. But it's just a simple fact that I would be bankrupt right now if it weren't for Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security. That, that basically have paid for almost all the expenses that my brother-in-law incurred, uh, you know, because of his disability. And uh, you know, I you know, without those programs, I would have been sunk. And I think that we all, we can protect each other against these risks that would otherwise really be catastrophic. You know, no one has enough money in the bank to uh, to deal with a really complicated cancer diagnosis or serious disability. And these things do happen in life, and we need a social safety net to protect each other and also to, to be good to each other because I think it's, uh, uh, you know, we... we we have to be good neighbors to each other as well.
1: Now, speaking of protecting, we have a chapter on insurance. Yes. Talk about the kinds of insurance you ought to have and maybe some of the kinds that you could skip.
0: So I think that it's important to make sure that that if something bad happens, that that that, that doesn't fundamentally alter your life or your family's life. So I'm a, I am think it's really important to have good health insurance and good life insurance, uh, and not to use those as investments but to use those to protect your family if something happens. So, you know, there's a you can life insurance can be endlessly complicated and I think the short answer that I would give is just you know, you're not using it as an investment, you're using it to make sure that if you drop dead tomorrow your family's protected. Uh, I so th- those are sort of the big things and you know, with your auto insurance, you want to have liability insurance so that if something bad happens to someone you know, with your car, you're protected in the same way. A lot of the other insurance that we have, you can really do less, um, especially if you have a good strategic reserve in the bank, which, which we recommend. So, for example, I've never filed a homeowner's insurance claim, uh, so I just have a large deductible on my homeowner's insurance, and that saves me money in two ways. First of all, you know, it's cheaper for the insurance company when they're not dealing with these small claims, But also, the people who have these high-deductible policies are the people who don't think that they're going to need their homeowner's insurance. So you're kind of lumping yourself in with a safer group of people, and so your monthly premium is lower. And the same is true with my auto insurance. But having a really high-deductible on your homeowners and your car insurance is, is a good way to save money.
1: Harold Pollack is the co-author with Helene Olin of the (laughs) Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to be Complicated. Harold, thanks for joining us. Great to have you.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: When I have an asthma attack, I feel scared. It's like tiny nails in the air poke my lungs. I start to cough. Sometimes my parents have to take me to the hospital.
0: Today, one out of 13 children suffer from some form of asthma. Accounting for nearly one-third of all emergency room visits. I feel like I'm choking. It's kind of like an elephant on my chest. A little whistle sound comes out when I breathe. But while your child may suffer from asthma, asthma doesn't have to make your child suffer. There are simple ways you can prevent your child's next attack. To learn more, call 1-866-NO-ATTACKS. That's 1-866-662-8822. Log on to www.noattacks.org or call your doctor. Because even one attack is one too many.
1: I feel like a fish
0: with no water. Brought to you by the EPA, the Ad Council, and this station.
1: Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brot. I want to jump into this week's Ask Mr. Dad column because it's a question that I'm getting more and more often. Dear Mr. Dad, my 24-year-old son and his wife are expecting their first baby in a few weeks. I'm really happy for him, and I'm looking forward to meeting my new granddaughter. The problem is that I'm not even 50 yet, and I can't wrap my head around the fact that I'm going to be a grandfather. I take good care of myself, I look pretty good for my age, and just don't feel like a grandparent. What can I do? Unfortunately, no matter how young you feel, and how much you work out, and how great you look, or how much of your hair you have left, there's still one thing that's going to make you and everyone else around you painfully aware. you're getting older. And that's that adorable little tot running around to meet you at the front door screaming, Hi, Grandpa, what did you bring me? Becoming a grandparent at a young age can be a real shock to the ego, something that a lot of us would prefer to keep safely in the future. But if it makes you feel any better, you are far from alone. According to AARP, which used to be called the American Association for Retired Persons, the average age of first-time grandparents is about 47, which almost no one considers old anymore anyway. A recent study of Gen Xers, who are kids who were born between 1964 and 1980, by MetLife found that only 27% would consider themselves old before the age of 60. 35% said that old is somewhere between 60 and 69, 25% said they wouldn't be old until they were 70 or older. No matter how much you prepare yourself, once that first grandchild shows up, your life will change in some pretty serious ways. Here are some steps you can take to make the transition a little bit less jarring. First of all, say no a lot. Are your children going to be counting on you to help with their baby? If so, that could mean making significant changes in your schedule. But since 75% of Gen Xers are working, that may not be so easy. Next, be a grown-up. Too many young grandfathers feel the need to prove that they aren't old by working longer hours or running faster or shooting more baskets than their sons and their sons-in-law Young grandmothers can fall into the same trap, too, but for them it's more about trying to look younger than their daughter or daughter-in-law, and since they typically have more disposable income to spend on stylish clothes and plastic surgery, those daughters and daughters-in-law can end up feeling kind of jealous and also kind of resentful. No turf wars. When you were a kid, grandparents were revered and respected as the senior members of the family. But since you're so young, there's a good chance that your own parents and maybe even your grandparents are still around. And since they're older and supposedly wiser than you, they may feel that they should have a bigger voice in how their great or great-great-grandchildren should be raised. Ultimately, it's really up to your son and his wife to decide whose sage advice to follow and whose to ignore. Finally, welcome change. You're not old, but you are getting older, just like the rest of us. So by all means, keep living your life, but don't pass up any opportunities to spend time with your grandchildren. They're only young once, and it goes by in such a flash. You'll really never forgive yourself if you miss too much of it. We'll be back next week with another Ask Mr. Dad column or a Parents at Play column, depending on which week it is. Until then, I'm Armin Broad.